Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions, who seek expert advice, and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well-home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air and our November episode, where we're still celebrating National Family Caregivers Month, but we're also focusing on National Alzheimer's Month, as well as Veterans Day coming up on November 11th. And our special guest on this episode is Dr. Ebony Green, who's going to talk about going from grief to gratitude. I'm your host, Sherry Stelling. And as I said, November, we've got a lot to celebrate. We're still celebrating all of our National Family Caregivers, but also we're going to focus a little bit on National Alzheimer's Month, which is in November, as well as Veterans Day coming up on November 11th. As a a proud daughter of a Navy veteran, Veterans Day and, and veterans and their caregivers always have a special place in my heart. And our special guest for this episode is Dr. Ebony Green, who is coming to us from Nebraska, but she's going to talk a lot about going from grief to gratitude. And she herself is also a daughter of a veteran. So we share that in common and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And of course, in our caregiver wellness news, we continue to touch upon some of the great reports and surveys that are coming out about caregiving in the workplace. But we're also going to talk to you a little bit about what's come out of the Global Wellness Summit which is put on by the Global Wellness Institute. So I have some reports for you on that in terms of self-care and wellness for caregivers. And then, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about Alzheimer's, but we're also going to touch upon some of the great work of the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, which supports caregivers of veterans. And then we'll dive into our Well Home Design News, where we're touching upon veterans with Tunnel to Towers Foundation. If you don't know about this group, they're really terrific. We'll tell you a little bit about them. And also our Me Time Monday wellness hack for this episode is going to be along our theme of living colorfully. We're going to touch upon the color purple and the emotional health side of purple, how that makes us feel and how that actually supports our resiliency and also our spirituality. So stay tuned for that Me Time Monday hack at the end of this episode. But for that, now let's dive into caregiver wellness news. So as we dive in here to our caregiver wellness news, I've got a lot to share with you. So I've got my notes in front of me, but I want to kick off with a discussion around caregivers in the workplace, which we focus a lot on. What's really, I think, inspiring and great to see is that there's a lot more surveys and reports that are being done now on how caregivers are being supported in the workplace by employers. And in fact, there was a new report that just came out that that I saw that was really talking about the employee resource group. So these are groups that are formed by different employees in the workplace who have similar interests or similar, they're all moms, or maybe they're all caregivers of older parents, or maybe both. 
They focus on a lot of different issues and they form these affinity groups and get together and, you know, have guest speakers in and also talk about different topics. And what's really interesting is that I do a lot of work with employers. I've done a lot of workshops and I do a lot of webinars for all the employees, but now I'm getting tapped by a lot of these employee resource groups to come talk to them specifically. And there's so many more that are now being formed around caregiving of the employees in the workplace. So again, very encouraging to see and great conversations, by the way, taking place. I get to do a lot of Q&A when I I come and talk to these groups. And in fact, I just recently did one for Ipsen. So I don't want to do a shout out to that group because they have a really terrific group that they've put together. And they had me speak a couple of weeks ago, which was really terrific. But what this report showed that came out is that 12% of employers are tracking these employee resource groups now on what their needs are, what are the things that are the conversations coming out of these groups. And It's encouraging to see that anyone's even focusing on this. The 12% though is low. So, you know, my hope is that we're going to just see this increase. But again, at least we're talking about how these groups can really provide that support, particularly in the workplace where I think we often keep our caregiving roles a little bit quiet. You know, we don't share as much, particularly if it's caring for an older parent or grandparent or, or, you know, an older loved one. It's not all uplifting great news, like if you become a new mom or or whatever. And so it's more difficult, I think, for the caregivers to share those with their colleagues or even talk about it with their supervisors. So I think all of this is a really great trend showing that we are certainly putting a lot more focus on that. I also wanted to do a shout out to Bianca Padilla, who is the CEO of CareWell, founder and CEO. She was on our May episode, so you may want to check that out. I'll have a link on this episode guide page. But she talked to us about what CareWell is, which is basically a really great shopping hub for family caregivers, particularly if you're looking for almost think about it as the alternative to you know, the CVS and Walgreens out there because they really curate their products along those lines, something you might find in a pharmacy, but very specific to caring for obviously older loved ones. And they came out with a new report. So I just wanted to share a couple of stats from that. First of all, they found that 76% of their respondents indicated having never used the caregiver resources available in their communities, such as, you know, attending a support group or getting respite care. So again, we want to really encourage family caregivers who are listening that there are some really great resources in your communities. You know, there's a lot of local chapters of Alzheimer's Association that are in your communities. Also, American Cancer Society, really great groups through American Heart Association. So a lot of the disease organizations and nonprofits have a lot of really great caregiver support groups that you can tap into, but also your respite care services. You know, there's a lot of volunteers and whether that's maybe through a faith-based organization, through your church or synagogue or mosque where people want to help contribute and give you those breaks. Also, again, check with your employers. Sometimes even employers will cover certain respite breaks, but there's also some free services. And we're talking about veterans this episode. If you happen to be caring for a veteran, you actually get 30 free days of respite care, which is basically getting a break for you as the family caregiver. And and we talked about respite care a couple of months ago. So again, I'll have that link in the episode guide page specifically calling that out. But you could get 30 days of free respite care where somebody can come in and sit with your loved one for an hour or two or longer, and you can run errands or get some time for yourself or whatever it is that you need that break for. So that was one of the findings in the CareWell study. The other thing they found is 69% of caregivers 
felt that they really are looking for flexibility from their employers. And I think I know that a lot of employers want employees to come back to the office. We want to encourage that camaraderie and teamwork and mentorship and support that we get by physically coming into an office, which I think there's advantages to both working from home and doing the Zoom meetings, as well as being in the office. But I think particularly for family caregivers, I think that flexibility is crucial. You know, taking the time that's needed to be at home and be able to get the things done that you need to and be close to your loved one that you can take care of, particularly if they're living alone at home, is really great. You don't have to worry about the commute to work. You don't have to worry about dashing out, you know, if there's an emergency or something from the office. And so hopefully employers will still support that in terms of the caregiving employees in their workplace. And then the last statistic was from the CareRoll study is 53% of their respondents asked for better understanding in patients, particularly I think from colleagues, but also from other friends and family members. And this is, you know, we're in this season of gratitude with uh, Thanksgiving coming up. I think this is a really important point because, again, I think that very often we get disgruntled with people who can't do the things they used to do, can't come meet us for lunch, can't meet us for coffee, can't do the walk that we used to do every week or whatever it happens to be because now all of a sudden you're caregiving. So having that empathy and be able to give support to that person as they're going through this journey is really really critical. And it's something that I think we should all expect from the people who love us the most, which are our family and friends. So I thought that was a really interesting finding. The other thing is really interesting is Harvard Business Review came out with a article that was about how we need to reframe our thinking around self-care. And I really love this article because what it talked about is, you know, we are so busy and we're juggling a lot of balls. We've got work, we've got family, we've got all things going on. And now all of a sudden, maybe we're caring for an older loved one. You know, again, maybe it's a parent or a parent-in-law or a grandparent. The ball that we usually drop is the ball that says me. It's the self-care ball. You know, we don't do what we need to do to take care of ourselves maybe as well. Don't focus on ourselves because we've got so many other people we're focusing on. And with this Harvard Business Review article said, and it's something that I've advocated for a long time, both in my first book, but as well in my second book that I'm just finishing up. And it's how we need to really think about it's not, I don't have the time for me. It's more about, wow, things have really become busy in my life. I have a lot more people I need to care for. Now it's even more important that I find those moments for myself. And again, it could be moments, even something like five or seven minutes a day, which sounds so small, right? But we just don't get to it. And if you can carve that out and give it to yourself as a gift every day, it's amazing how much that helps keep you going. It gives you kind of the stamina. It lets you kind of just reflect for a moment and pause for a moment and say, okay, yeah, times are tough and situations are tough, but I I will get through this. It's really important to find that me time and that self-care time. So I think, yeah, if we can talk to ourselves a little differently about why it's important you know, we have to put ourselves into that equation of caregiving. We can't just say we're caring for someone else now all of a sudden, or we're caring for others. We always have to care for ourselves. You know, that almost has to be the foundational layer. And then you can add everybody else on top of that. The other thing I wanted to touch upon real quickly is in the wellness sector. So as you know, my second book, which is coming out early next year, is called Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life. And you'll get to read all about that. But I have really been in tune with the Global Wellness Institute. And a lot of the great work that they're doing, lots of research 
and uh, lots of trends reporting. And they just had their international summit, which is actually held in Tel Aviv in Israel. But thankfully, they had some virtual panel sessions that I was able to attend. And here's something interesting I wanted to share with you. A couple of things. First of all, there was a study that came out that said for every $800 that we spend on people's wellness expenditures. Now, that may be personal, but also really they were talking about organizations, mostly about employers. If we spend that, the happiness levels rise by 7% and life expectancy goes up by 1.26 years, which is, again, I think what it's showing us is the well-being of our family caregivers is so critical. And if we can give them a little time back for these wellness practices, we're going to extend their lives and we're going to help them stay healthy and happy. So that was a report that came out. Something else I thought was really interesting. There are now wellness credit cards, if you can believe it. Not that any of us need to go into more debt. I know it's a really tough time with the inflation and gas prices and everything else. You know, we're all struggling. I'm always amazed every time I go to the grocery store, the price of things like double, triple, quadrupled, whatever. And it's making it really tough. So we don't want to necessarily, you know, get go into more debt. But what's interesting about these wellness credit cards, and this is just a trend I think we'll see in the future, is they're giving out rewards points for wellness activities. So for instance, there's some cards and apps, and I think most of these are in Europe right now, but Ness, Paceline, CrowdFit, not necessarily, you know, the typical American Express or Discover or other credit cards, MasterCard, Visa that we think about, but they're offering extra cash back for points on spending something like getting a salad or downloading a meditation app that you have a subscription to or buying a pair of running shoes. So they're actually watching your activity as the credit card companies do. We know they're watching us and surveilling what we're purchasing, but now they're going to reward you for doing things like this. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And I think it'll be interesting to watch. We'll see where that trend goes. But I have a feeling that it is something that's going to probably become a little bit more mainstream because wellness is so important to so many of us. Something else that came out from the summit was there's a company in Australia called Lumi Interactive. And they have been in kind of more of the video gaming sector for a long time, but they are now focusing on really interesting because it's all female, all women gamers who started this company. And what they're now doing are self-care games. So they're creating these apps where, for instance, you can promote feeling good and relaxation by doing an activity like watering plants or petting farmyard animals. And, you know, again, this is a video game, so you have to kind of go into your creative space now and think about what this game is or acts of kindness. Really interesting. I think it's a, I think it's a great app maybe for kids too, because it'll really teach us to calm down a little bit, de-stress, be kind to each other and to others. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But I thought that was a really interesting trend coming out of the Global Wellness Summit. Now, switching to Alzheimer's news, many of you have emailed me about There was a controversy in Alzheimer's research that actually came out over the last year, and it was where a research group that had really been very influential in having a lot of funding go towards something what we call beta amyloid or amyloid beta research, which is about the sticky plaque in the brain that actually doesn't allow the neurons to connect and and transmit information to each other. So that's a hallmark of what we see in an Alzheimer's brain. And a lot, I mean, tens and millions of dollars from the National Institute on Aging have gone into funding research for this AB 
beta amyloid kind of pathway. And unfortunately, one of the more instrumental research studies that really influenced that funding was fraudulent, I guess is the best way maybe to put it. The researchers had doctored some of the images and then inaccurately reported on the data that showed more progress and showed more promise in uh, researching this. Now, the alternative to the sticky plaque beta amyloid, of course, is tau tangles, which is a, a different group of researchers that really believe that that's more of the answer to unlocking the secrets of Alzheimer's and dementia. So I just wanted to let you know that it's very unfortunate when these things happen in science, as with anything else where there's fraud and disinformation and, you know, misinformation and all this stuff. But it isn't to say that this is the wrong path. And it isn't to say that all science now needs to be suspect. I think there's so many great researchers out there doing great work, chasing down cures and treatments. The other comment I wanted to make, and by the way, we have um, 6.5 million Americans right now are living with Alzheimer's disease in this country. That also, they also have 11 million family caregivers who are caring for them. And so, one of the things I think that's really important is to note that a lot of the drug therapies that are out there right now, and there's been some controversy about the really expensive Adahelm drug, which was now, I think, going to be covered by Medicare. There's still some controversy around that. They really only work in the early stages of the disease, and then they they don't work forever. So I've talked to a lot of friends, and I've talked to a lot of other people who have had questions about this. And if you're in the earliest stages of the disease, it can help to kind of slow what seems like the progression and some of the aspects of the disease with memory loss and behavioral change and some of these other things. But for the most part, the drugs will only work for about 18 to 24 months. So it's not like, okay, great, look at mom seems really better. So now we've put this on hold. Well, yes, possibly, but that on hold is just a pause button that isn't going to last forever. And unfortunately, that's why we need a lot of this funding that goes into this research so that we can find the cures and the therapies that will put it on hold forever or prevent it or whatever it is. Now, talking about prevention, a really interesting study because I'm a dog lover, as most of you know, there was a study that came out called the Dog Aging Project. And what's interesting is dogs, of course, do develop dementia. And what has been found in the animal world is that dog dementia is very similar pathway, what we call pathology, as human dementia. And so this study focused on dogs with dementia. And what they found is that the disease was six times higher in dogs that aren't physically active and don't get their walks or playtime and, you know, bouncing around like my dog always does. I think this has got some really interesting, again, just a, another piece of evidence because there was the Lancet study that came out a couple of years ago on humans and Alzheimer's. And what the Lancet study said is there's 12 modifiable lifestyle factors. And they include things like better diet, nutrition, but definitely more, more movement, more active, more physical activity, more social engagement, social activity and social health, and uh, along with other factors. But this could prevent up to 40% of Alzheimer's cases. This is still a hypothesis, but 
even if we have the chance to change the the disease for many of us, getting a little bit more active and getting out there is good for us and good for our dogs. So get a dog and both you and your dog will benefit from all of that activity. The other thing I wanted to do a shout out is Gina Martin is the founder and director of the Bob and Diane Fund. And what's great about this fund is they give an annual grant to photographers and videographers every year who tell the best stories about Alzheimer's and dementia. So it's all about storytelling. And again, November is National Family Stories Month, but it's really encouraging people in the arts to investigate and tell the stories. They're so poignant. You know, we often believe when we get that diagnosis of dementia that everything is over, but there's still a person inside. There are still stories to be heard. And if you listen to our last podcast, you heard this from Elizabeth Winthrop Alsop, who talked about really discovering the story, the secret stories of her mom and her dad, but really pulling that out of her while her mother had dementia. And it was one of the ways she could connect with her mom is going back into those early years and talking about those family stories and the family history and even the family secrets. So I just want to encourage people out there who have that diagnosis that yes, it, it can be very devastating, but there's still some hope. And I think having those conversations as families as early on as possible is really great for both you and for your loved one. And also just a quick shout out to two colleagues of mine, in the dementia world. Tipa Snow, who has an organization called Positive Approach to Care. If you don't know of Tipa and haven't seen any of her videos or joined her workshops, if you're a family caregiver, there's nobody better to help you learn how to communicate with your loved one than Tipa Snow. She's all over YouTube, but check out Positive Approach to Care. We'll have the link on our episode guide page. And then another colleague, but also a great friend of mine is Lori LeBay. And I just wanted to do a shout out to Lori because for, I think it's been over 12 years now, probably longer. Lori's been doing this really great radio show called Alzheimer's Speaks. She's got great guests and experts and covers so many different topics. She and I have done work together in the past. And I just wanted to do a shout out because if you do have a loved one with dementia, listening to Lori's radio show is really helpful because she she talks about Alzheimer's and family caregiving all the time. And then my first Giving Tuesday tip, because Giving Tuesday is coming up. It's the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving where we can you know, donate and give some funds to organizations and nonprofits that we really care about. I just want to do a shout out to a group. Now, I've done some work with this group, but I really have believed in them for such a long time. And it's called Us Against Alzheimer's. And they do tremendous programs in educating families about brain health, but also educating healthcare professionals about dementia and Alzheimer's, because we know our primary care physicians even don't know enough about this disease, and we really need them to. They're the front line of discovering that somebody may be at risk before you get connected to an expert like a neurologist. So we really need a lot more education in our healthcare professional ranks, as well as our own families. And they have a great website called Brain Guide. And again, we'll have the link on the episode guide page. It's mybrainguide.org. If you're interested in donating to an organization, I would say this is one of the best ones in the Alzheimer's community. And by the way, you can check out my interview with Brooks Kenny, who was on my very first podcast episode, season one, episode one, Brooks Kenny of Us Against Alzheimer's. And she'll tell you a lot more about the work that they're doing. But that's my Giving Tuesday tip for you. And then quickly, I want to turn to Veterans Day coming up on November 11th. As I mentioned, 
My stepdad was a, a Navy veteran. I'm really, really supportive of the veterans community and also the family caregivers. And that's where the Elizabeth Dole Foundation has really focused. They really support the family members caring for veterans of all wars. We've got so many different things going on. We've got the cancer that's come out of certain Agent Orange and, and things that happen with our Vietnam veterans. And, you know, there's been some controversies now about some of the contamination of water at Fort Lejeune and some other things, but also the PTSD and some of the more mental health aspects of our veterans returning from Afghanistan and Iraq. The Elizabeth Dole Foundation does great work. They just had one of their gala events. Tom Hanks happens to be a champion for them. And also Savannah Guthrie, who won their Caregiver of the Year Award. She's an ambassador for a group, she and Tom Hanks, called Hidden Heroes, which are the family caregivers of veterans that they're caring for. So you can check out all the great work that the Elizabeth Dole Foundation is doing. I had been involved in a study years ago with the National Alliance for Caregiving and uh, the United Health Foundation, where we were one of the first groups to take a look at the family caregiver health and stress of caring for a veteran. And I was really, really proud of that study. And I think that really kind of became a landmark study for a lot of the great work that, that's being done by other groups and also continuing to be done by the National Alliance for Caregiving. So with that, I'm going to turn a little bit to a veteran's angle here, but we're going to talk to Dr. Ebony Green. Now, she is a, a nurse, but also a caregiving expert and an author of several caregiving books. She's a professor of aging and caregiving at Walden University, and she's also the CEO and founder of Caregiver Support Services. We'll have the link on our episode guide page, but she does tre tremendous work, really helpful for family caregivers. And, you know, she's cared for her mom and her dad and her mother-in-law. So she knows caregiving from both a professional and a personal perspective. And Ebony and I have followed each other on LinkedIn for a long time. And we've shared little notes back and forth. And she reached out to me and I said, yeah, what's going on? I've got to have you on the podcast. So we set this up and I'm really excited to have her on. She's going to talk about how we go from grief to gratitude. Great theme, I think, for this holiday season. So with that, here is my interview with Dr. Ebony Green. So I am really thrilled today to have Dr. Ebony Green on our podcast. She is a registered nurse, has a PhD in health services, has written, I think, three or more books now on family caregiving, and really runs the gamut of really helping family caregivers with great expertise in a lot of areas, but has done a lot of work recently in more of the grief and some of the guilt and family conflict that we know can arise when we become family carers. So we're just thrilled to have her on the podcast today. So, Ebony, welcome to Caregiving Club on Air. Thank you, Sherry. Well, it's great to have you here. And of course, we always ask our guests, our first question is, where are we talking to you from today? I am in the great state of Omaha, Nebraska. City Wonderful. City. You're you're our first Nebraska interview. So we <laughs> we really are excited to, we'll, we're kind of checking off the box of hitting all the states across the U.S. So thank you for being our Nebraska representative. But, you know, I'm really thrilled to jump into everything today. But I first wanted to start with, you know, so often when we're talking to experts in the field, they also have a personal caregiving story. And I thought maybe you could tell our listeners just a little bit about your personal caregiving journey and how your expertise in all these areas really maybe helped you through that journey. I actually started with an interest in nursing and uh, my grandmother was a nurse and my very first job 
was she took me to a long-term care facility in Nebraska and I became a nursing assistant. I had an interest in being a long-term care administrator. And during my work with that area of helping individuals identify long-term care facilities and whether or not our facility would be the place for them, noticed that a lot of families had no idea what was involved in that whole process. And so I actually started looking at caregiving support from the perspective of families who were going through transitions to long-term care. And then if we fast forward a little bit, as my husband and I, as our parents have gotten older, we had two back-to-back caregiving situations, both with his mother and stepfather. And so it was really good to have had some knowledge and experience on the end of um, knowing how to delegate and knowing how to get all the family members and such involved. But the emotional aspect is something that you can't really necessarily prepare for, I think. Yeah, I think you're so right. You know, I've found, I mean, I've done a lot of writing on caregiving myself and but it, it's still it's still challenging when it comes to like right now I'm kind of a caregiver for my mom. I mean, she certainly is very lively and thriving, but you know, I'm there to support her and everything. And I think that sometimes it's really easy to for us to give out great advice, but sometimes a lot harder when it comes to <laughs> really putting that advice into practice with our own families. Tell me, you know, we're going to dive into this topic on grief, but I, I thought we'd start with, you know, so often when we do talk about grief, we talk about the loss of a loved one, right? And a lot of people think that grief only comes with death, but you and I both know that it can happen in a lot of different instances in our lives and sometimes even starts with diagnosis. So tell us a little bit about how we should be thinking about grief in terms of our life journey and particularly family caregiving. I think that, of course, losing someone you love is one of those major aspects of life that's going to change you. But when we think about some of the experiences we've been having over the past couple of years, folks may be grieving the loss of being at work and having coworkers and colleagues. They also may be grieving, not necessarily seeing friends like you want to. And then what if you weren't able to see someone and then now they've passed away, you know, via through the pandemic, but not necessarily because of the pandemic. So I think we're, you know, job loss, having to take on so much, our way of life, where you weren't so necessarily worried about the pandemic, the virus, and all that that disrupted are things that were piling on, on top of our regular grief. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that you know, like you said, grieving just the loss of certain things in our life that we, our normal routines and all of that is really important. So I want to take our listeners through the five stages of grief and have you talk about each of those five stages and how do we transition through these stages? And, you know, what what should we think about when we are in these stages? So if you can start with those stages of grief, that would be great. So I do want to preface the conversation. I took a course through my PhD that was specifically on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the stages of grief. And because I knew at some point I was going to want to write about it and I wanted to have a really good understanding. And so when we think about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I want us to think about her as a foundational 
for grief, she really did excellent one-on-one interviews with folks who were dying. When she started her work, these folks were, uh, when she started her work, she was noticing at, at the hospital, you know, a person gets a terminal diagnosis and then what? How do we bring both the individual who's getting this diagnosis and their family through to this phase of acceptance with the diagnosis and the terminal illness? And so over time, we've applied Elizabeth Kubler-Ross to the living. And so we've looked at the stage of denial, denying that someone is um, maybe has that terminal diagnosis, bargaining, acceptance, depression, and um, I'm missing one, um, anger. Anger. (laughs) Yes. A big (laughs) one, right? (laughs) (laughs) So we look at those five stages of grief, but I want us to really think about how when we talk about grief as caregivers, and we think about uh, specifically loss of a loved one, that we really want to think about our emotions that we're feeling. Mm. So things like, are you more tearful if you're depressed for more than six months or longer, and it is disrupting your ability to cope? Are you angry? Are you so angry that you simply can't really function? And over time, when you look at these different emotions, tearfulness, loneliness, and isolation, those different emotions, and if we're not able to address those emotions, those can lead to things like complicated grief. And when we experience complicated grief, And I can speak to this personally. We took care of my mother-in-law and my mom is in California. And so we've raised our family here where my husband is from. And all this time, I've always had my mother-in-law. She was a, a mile away. And so we cared for her and we did a good job as a family of coming together to meet her needs. And when she passed away, my natural inclination is to fill my schedule, to just book my schedule. And I did that. And about a year into it, that next January or so, I just hit a complete brick wall and really felt so down. And it was just that realization that the person who was just down the street and this, the, our whole marriage, we've, we've been together 26 years and raising our children. I've always had her here. And so I never had a missing or longing. My mom visits plenty. So I never had a missing or longing for that mother figure because my mother-in-law was here. Right. And so I think if we think about the, you know, and I, so I had a complicated grief experience and actually had to reach out and start working with a therapist. And so I think if, yeah, so I think if it's normalized that it may not be that at the end, we have this total acceptance of the loss. Yes, we accept. I accept that she's not down the street, but it impacts my life in different ways. And which makes me sad sometimes. And that's okay, because she was such a major part of our lives. 
So I want everyone to kind of, if you get something out of this conversation, is to not place the expectation on yourself, although you may experience those five stages of grief, to not expect within a year or so that you're going to get over that loss, especially if you've been a caregiver. If it's you're talking about a parent or you're talking about a spouse. This is really interesting because it sounds like you kind of can start or go through some of these different stages of grief, but you can kind of ping pong back too, right? You can revisit that even when you thought maybe you were starting to get over it, something comes up and takes you back to maybe depression or something. I think it's really a great comment that you're making that there is no set time also to get through these five stages, right? It's all very personalized. And um, I think that's a difficulty for people. Do you find that when you talk to family caregivers that they just like, when is this going to be over or when am I going to feel better? Or, you know, do you find a lot of those emotions? I do. And I find that if you have individuals in the family who are not willing to openly share, I call it a communion, not like church communion, but communing with other folks. And when you're together with other people who loved the person who's now gone, there's a sort of communion of this, the energy of, of everybody together supporting one another. And when family members and family dynamics change because you've lost maybe that person that really held everybody together, people can find that siblings are not necessarily there for each other the way that they need them to be. And I'll use a, another personal example. My father, I grew up an only child. My father was a Marine and a retired officer. Ooh, and oh uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And um last year he got into a really bad car accident and was in needed care for a while. And um he is in the West Virginia area. Unfortunately, at the end of October last year, he passed away. Sorry. Yeah, it's really tough. And when you being an only child, sometimes it's very isolating. I'm very close with my stepmother, but she is a retired Air Force doctor. And so she's not as maybe emotionally available or or what have you. And so you, you know, if she's making it, then he was her soulmate. So mm-hmm. if she's making it through the day and being okay then as a daughter, I don't necessarily want to reach out with my sadness and then necessarily bring her down. But it's isolating because the only people who really would have felt that way, like a a life altering loss of him, a lot of people loved him, but like uh, how your day is going to go is altered. He was my person he was her person. And so it makes it really challenging. So I think when we put those timelines on ourselves and we don't necessarily have folks that we can really connect with and that are necessarily feeling what we are feeling or open to talking about it, it's very isolating and that can complicate your grief. Yeah. Well, and you bring up something else that I think is so so essential in in that feeling alone. So you as an only daughter, only child, you didn't have any siblings, you know, to, to, even if the siblings, you know, as you said, sometimes there's family conflict 
And that's that's the thing that I think also we find family caregivers, right, who do have siblings, like you were saying. What advice, how do you help family caregivers who say, I feel all alone in my grief? I feel like my partner or my spouse or my siblings or even my friends don't get it. Everybody expects me to just get on with it or get over it or whatever. How how do you help that family caregiver through all that? Well, I think that one of the things to do is first to start thinking about how people can support you. Because folks will be there in those initial periods and then everybody gets busy and then they're not. So it might be that you really need everybody or your sister or brother to get together for game night on Saturdays because that makes you feel connected. But if you don't say anything, then it's probably not going to happen. The other things that you might think about are really, again, setting forth exactly what it, what it is that you need. And if you don't know, I really hope that folks will reach out and find someone a therapist to work with, a counselor that works in this area, because they're so good at sometimes what you really need is somebody to listen mm-hmm. and not just not just listen to you, but to hear you and identify that, yeah, that would be really hard to have changed your entire life, your entire life structure to care for someone And now that person is gone and you've got this empty space. And then to, again, remember that you're not going to be putting those time limits on yourself. Another thing I think could be helpful, we are all engaged with social media. I know that I am. And I have found it very helpful for me to, especially with Facebook, to let that be while I am grieving the loss because you will go on there and then there'll be a memory. And depending on where you're at emotionally that day, it may hit you in a different way. And then you need to go lay down and that's okay too. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. That can really, that social media can really bring back things that you hadn't been thinking about. What What are your thoughts on support groups? I know that some of the work I've done in the Alzheimer's community A lot of people have said support groups really help because if you're not the primary caregiver of someone with dementia, because that is such a different disease, people just don't get it. Like friends don't understand the disease. Maybe even your sister or brother living across the country doesn't get it. But do you find that support groups are helpful for family caregivers? Yes, I find that to be one of the most valuable resources. And even when folks maybe couldn't get out, I know that they did a lot of the Zoom groups, there are different chat groups, because you don't find that you're having to explain the ground level of what it is that you're experiencing. And you can get to the deeper part of how things are making you feel. And maybe somebody has something that they tried. And even if you try it and it doesn't work, there's always that space between trying it hearing the idea and trying it. And so you have that hope that's continuing on that you're going to find some ways to some outlets and some ways to work through your grief. And I also think that that understanding is very important, that unspoken understanding that happens in in support groups. Yeah. One of the things, I think there was just a recent report that came out that talked about how 
just as a nation, we are much more secular. People haven't really been as involved in in their faith communities and and all of that. How, How do you feel that just that sense of spirituality, whether you call that religion or whether you call it something else, but how does that help us with our our grief? Oh my goodness, that's one of the more important things I think and I think it's it you express it in the way that you need to. So if you have a congregation that you're connected with, you have supportive folks there, that's wonderful. But you might also have things like meditation or communing with nature. There are all kinds of things that you can do that don't necessarily mean that you have to go to another place. But sometimes that's the thing is that you just need to get a change of space. You've been in your home or you've been, so you're surrounded by different things or that room is now empty. That's a reminder. Is there something we can do together to make that space, to make that space usable and a happy place again? And to me, those are all spiritual things. So I think it's very important. And I think what's hard these days is getting people to slow down mm-hmm. in order to identify what it is that's going to feed you spiritually. Yeah, I think that's such an important one. You know, I think in our, again, in our society, we've kind of applauded people who are multitaskers and can seemingly do it all and <laughs> do it fast. And it's like, we don't take enough time to just take a breath, right? And I think you have to be very intentional about that, about the projects that you're going to do, the things that you're going to do, what's adding meaning to your life. Last year, we decided to take all of our kids. Um, We only have one that's still at home. She's 15, but we took, we have four. Uh, We have a blended family and we took everybody to uh, Pagosa Springs in Colorado. And lovely. Yeah. And it was just like, everybody's been in isolation and let's just go somewhere beautiful. It's a cart. We flew to Denver and then we drove all together in one car to Pagosa, which was so many, you know, a few hours. It was nice. It was just like, they're all grown, but just getting everybody back together again. And that was a spiritual. I was just going to say, how did everybody feel after that time being together? (laughs) It was so, we were so relaxed and in tune with each other. And I'm naughty. I, I'm always on the computer and such. So I put that all away and just enjoyed the family. It seems simple, right? Okay, let's take a road trip and do a little family trip here and how that can really lift you. I think people don't realize if you just invest a little time in doing things like that, how much it really, really helps. You you mentioned something and I wanted to touch on this in our discussion. So you mentioned meaning. And there was a book that came out from David Kessler. I know you know the book well, called Finding Meaning. And he had worked with Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And he kind of calls this now the sixth stage of grief. But tell us a little bit about how we go from acceptance to meaning. What is that all about? Well, I think sometimes it will come to you if you have that opportunity for stillness and reflection, that you will then find out what is my next thing to do. And what I mean by that is it doesn't have to actually be doing anything, but what's my next phase in my, I call it a pilgrimage. What's the next phase in this pilgrimage of grief? And finding meaning is 
very important. Of course, like I said, I'm really going through some heavy grief with the loss of my dad and feeling a little isolated with with that. And my thing is that I always lean on is writing. I've always loved that. So I'm writing right now a new something new that I'm going to dedicate to him. That's lovely. Thank you. And I think I think it really just depends on the individual. My mom and aunt were really close sisters, maybe a year and a half, two years apart. And my aunt passed away from cancer. She had leukemia, went into remission, and then she it came back and she she passed away. And it was so hard for my mom. And my aunt had such a strong religious base and so uh, foundation. And so my what my mom watching my aunt have to go through such pain and agony, it was very unbearable for her. And she went into basically a period of complicated spiritual grief where she had questioning and then you feel guilty for questioning your spirituality and your upbringing. And so it's taken her a really long time and to find what that next thing is. So I don't want people again to get caught in that it's going to come to you right away because Mm. it may not come to you right away. So she was a lawyer. So now her shift has been to go into, to seek a degree in social work and counseling because she wants to focus on veterans. Um, she's a veteran too, but it's taken her a really long time to process that whole thing because of the complicated spiritual grief that she experienced. So finding meaning may not be, it may not be something that you readily identify, but you could definitely read Dr. Kessler's book and that might help you work through and find what it is that it, that you you want to do next yeah you want to share next this is great you know we're coming into the holidays so this episode's going to drop during November National Family Caregiver Month so we're excited to have you on for this but we've got the holidays coming up and it sounds like this will also maybe for you personally be the first holiday without your dad what would you say to our listeners out there who may be going through something similar maybe this is the first holiday season without a loved one or they're just struggling around the holidays and it's always a tough time. What's your advice? My advice is to do something different. And what I mean by that is for my family, usually everyone on my husband's side and and everybody far and wide would come for Thanksgiving. I don't think I'm going to do that this year. I think I'm going to probably, my husband and I will probably go and get a room (laughs) and have a nice dinner and not put that pressure on me to host. Now you're That sounds great by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be that drastic. So if you're someone who is feels like you're really going to feel good about cooking, I thought I was too last year. I cried the whole time I was cooking and you know, if you have older children, our oldest daughter offered, "Well, mom, I'll come over." the night before and I'll cook and that way you don't have to do it. So it might be something that, you know, you have to say, because I had to say, Hey, everybody, this is a lot. 
in cooking and doing those things, you're taking care of everyone else. And you may feel good about it. And you may get in the middle of mashing those potatoes and really mash them. (laughs) Right. Well, that's right. So you lost, I'm sorry, you lost your dad in October last year. So then really just a month later, you were in the middle of everything. And you still did Thanksgiving for everybody? (laughs) I did, but it was, I was angry. I was angry and I had to call my daughter and say, you know, I'm angry. And I had to sit down with my husband Thanksgiving morning and I just was crying. So I will do it different this year and I won't place that pressure on myself. Christmas, we have little grand people that we will will love. So that's different. Christmas Eve last year, we did different too. All the kids came over on Christmas Eve and everybody had their pajamas and they're all grown and everybody stayed overnight. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that was, wasn't work. Yeah. So if you think that you need to, if even if you don't, because you'll get in the middle of it, I think, and be very overwhelmed. So try to think about what's going to be, maybe you just are going to make your specialty dish. Maybe you're not going to do anything. Maybe you're going to go on a trip somewhere nice and beautiful and warm. Do whatever is that's going to feed you spiritually. Well, and I love that. I love that kind of ending on feeding ourselves spiritually, taking a little self-care time. Ebony, is there anything else you want to share with our audience that we haven't touched on? And we're, by the way, on our episode guide page, we're going to have links to your website. And I think that's where people can find your books, right? And all of the other great work that you do. Is there anything else we should tell our audience about your work or anything else you want to share? I'm so appreciative to have the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. And I think that we all in our work, we're all encouraging caregivers to take care. And we really mean it. We really want you to take actionable steps. We want you to learn from the things that we've gone through and not have to do that alone. And in taking care of yourself, we know is going to increase your longevity and your well-being and the fullness of your life. So if that's what, if I had anything to say, it would be actually do something for yourself. It's not selfish and use the tools and things that are out there. Everyone's not going to like every, you're going to have what fits and works for you best. So I'm always all about collaborating and, and highlighting and uplifting other resources too, so that people can find what works for them. Well, I'm just grateful to have you on the podcast and I have to tell our listeners. So how this happened, I've been a fan of yours, by the way, for a long time on LinkedIn. When you post things, I've always tried that was you post some really great stuff on LinkedIn and that's where I'm mostly on social media. But I had posted something about, I had a map of where we were interviewing people and you said, Hey, what about Nebraska? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So I'm really appreciative that you reached out and said, Hey, let's, let's get Nebraska on your, your map. (laughs) And so you were somebody I had on my list that I, I was really grateful to have on and talk about this topic, which is so important, particularly again, as families are gathering. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity and, and our funny little, story about how we right. follow each other and hey that's right <laughs> <laughs> exactly well thank you again dr ebony green where can our listeners learn more about you we are at caregiver support so it's singular services.org 
Awesome. So we will have that on our episode guide page. And again, Ebony, thank you and happy holidays to you and your family. You too. Thanks so much. So wasn't that a great interview with Ebony? She's so wonderful. And I just always am inspired when I hear her talk and share a lot of her story and some of her personal experiences, but also just giving us those insights on gratitude and grief and all of that. So I really appreciate her being on. Now let's turn to our well-home design news. As we've been talking about November 11th is Veterans Day. I wanted to highlight an organization, a nonprofit You may have heard of them, but they're called Tunnel to Towers Foundation. And it was founded in the name of Stephen Siller by um, his brother, Frank Siller, and I think some other family members as well. Stephen Siller was a fireman who on 9-11 ran across the bridge to the towers to help out and unfortunately lost his life in 9-11. He was one of our first responders that we lost. So in his memory, Frank and his family founded the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. So that's the story behind Tunnel to Towers. And they do tremendous work. And the reason why I wanted to highlight them in Well Home Design News is that the focus of the work that they do is to provide mortgage-free homes to veterans who have been wounded or disabled or to the, the veterans' families who have lost a veteran or a first responder. And this includes not just our vet, our military veterans, but also our first responders, our law enforcement, our fire department. And so what they do, for instance, with a wounded veteran who might have certain disability or paraplegia or whatever it happens to be, they do smart homes. So they customize these homes and make them accessible, which you learned about on our episode a couple episodes ago with Rosemary Rossetti when she was talking about universal design and the home that she created for herself now that she, after her accident, she was in a wheelchair and she needed everything to be at a certain height and easy to access. Same kind of concept going into these homes and using a lot of the latest technology, but also a lot of the beautiful design work that's out there to make sure that there's no lip on the entry into the home, which where a wheelchair can get stuck, or that there are shelves that can pull down. So you can pull it down to be able to reach the plates or the glassware or whatever it is. There are stovetops that can go up and down. So again, If you've got different family members in the home, maybe if your wife is cooking, she needs the stovetop to be at a certain level. But if you're cooking and you're sitting in a wheelchair, you need to lower the stovetop. So, and then stuff in the bathroom. Anyway, tremendous, tremendous work. And it's just such a labor of love. You can tell, I see the commercials all the time that Frank does about the organization. And just to give you some statistics, they've held over 3,000 events nationwide. They've provided more than 200 mortgage-free homes so far, and it usually costs about $330,000 per family to provide these homes. So if it's a situation where a veteran or a first responder was killed in the line of duty and now their family is concerned, can we stay in the home? What are we going to do? How are we going to afford the mortgage when our loved one was the one that was doing the work so that we could be here? So That's where, again, Tunnel to Towers comes in and they say, don't worry about it. We are going to take care of you. It's just, I get choked up thinking about it because it's such a great gift 
to these families who have given so much, whether they've lost their loved one in the line of duty to save us, to give us our freedom and our liberty, or whether they've lost a limb or had other issues. It's a really great gift, I think, for all of us to think about. So, you know, there's grants for home modification through the Veterans Administration, but often those grants are only for a couple of thousands, you know, of dollars. It doesn't really cover a lot of the things that need to be done. My second Giving Tuesday tip is please, when if you consider giving any kind of donation this year, think about Tunnel to Towers. One of the things they ask for is $11 a month. They said $11 a month goes so far. But even if it, if you don't have that, because I know times are tough for all of us. So it's really easy to say, oh, yes, let's all get behind donating. But you know, when you're trying to pay your Edison bill like I am and your utility bills and you see the grocery and the gas costs go up. I know it's really tough, but if there's anything that you can do, even if it's $11 for just, you know, right now, every little bit helps. And I think this is one of those organizations where they don't spend a lot on big executive salaries. They don't do things that are unnecessary. They really have a great rating as far as the charity goes. And so much, I think, I think it's at least 99 cents or so on that dollar is going to go into these homes. So you can really see where your money goes. And I like charities like that. I like giving to nonprofits where you really see where that money goes and you know you're making a difference. So consider the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. We'll have the link on our episode guide page. The other thing too, I just wanted to mention. So a couple of articles that I've written recently for PBS Next Avenue, one was from the July conference, the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. And it was about how our environments really impact our brain health. So this particular study came out of Dallas. It was based on the respondents in the Dallas Heart Health Survey. But what they did is they took a look at where the residents outside of the greater Dallas area lived and were they living in environments where there had been increased crime or that they couldn't feel like they could turn to their neighbors if there was a you know an issue or a problem like crime or safety in the neighborhood. So maybe they don't have like a neighborhood watch program or something like that? Do they have access to good medical care? How close-knit do they feel with their neighbors? And do they share the same values? Do they have adequate access to things like fresh food and affordable heating? So obviously, they took a look at more of the upscale neighborhoods in the Dallas area, but also the lower income neighborhoods. And one of the things that I think was really interesting that they found is that we actually the environments we live in impact our brain and particularly the white matter in our brain. So if you have escalated crime and safety, if you don't have a green environment where you can walk and see beautiful trees or forests or whatever it is, if you don't have access to good healthy food or access to good quality medical care, all of these things contribute to our brain health and can put us at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. So that article is going to post in a couple of weeks. It's not out yet, but I'll, I'll include that post once it does. I think it's a great article and I'd really love for you to look at it because the researchers really, they're continuing the research in this area. And I think it was really important research that they're doing. The other article that did just come out, I wrote about how big brands, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, so Pottery Barn, Lowe's, H&M, now using Jane Fonda as their spokesperson, they're really focusing on older adults and also that the younger generations are really going for this coastal grandmother trend. And, you know, it's really interesting. I just watched our, the Architectural Digest does these really great videos when they showcase a person's home, they'll do a video and the, you get a video tour of their home. So I'm, I love this. This is like my, instead of doing social media, this is what I do. I like scroll through all the Architectural Digest videos. Well, if you don't know of Emma Chamberlain, 
Emma Chamberlain is a, a TikTok sensation, an Instagram sensation. She's a young woman who decided to just start doing these lifestyle videos, but she's got such a great sense of humor. And she's just, she's just really one of those people that a lot of people follow. Anyway, she's got enormous clout. She was named like one of the top 100 young people to follow by Time Magazine and yada, 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 all these great accolades. But her home was recently featured in Architectural Digest. Now she's so young and I'm thinking, my goodness, this home is pretty amazing for a young person. That shows you how old I am, right? It was a really interesting home. And what I loved is her commentary is, I can see why she's a sensation because she's just really great to watch. But I love the fact that she talked about how she really embraces like, you know, things, she says things like my grandparents would like, like this. And she'll point out some vase or something she found on Etsy. But it's showing, I think, an appreciation among our younger generations for older people, for, you know, the lifestyles of the 60s and 70s, if you will. And in a way, I think that's a great way to bridge this divide that we've seen in the generations where, you know, we've had some of the okay boomer and snowflake millennials, you know, we're throwing all of these things at each other. And instead, we can really appreciate, I think, the things about each other. And so she just brings a breath of fresh air. So you can check out that Emma Chamberlain. It doesn't really have anything to do with caregiving, but I just thought it was really interesting to watch. And I love the fact that a lot of Lex Nicoletta, who's the TikTok, she's in her 20s, I think. She's the one that um, really coined the phrase coastal grandmother. And it was a veneration of Nancy Myers movies and Diane Keaton and Meryl Streep starring in Something's Gotta Give. And it's complicated. And I wrote about this and talked about this on our, I think it was our September episode. So you can check that out. And I've got all kinds of information there. But it's just really inspiring to see the generations kind of coming together over, you know, getting older doesn't have to be awful. And in fact, it can be cool. So with that, we're going to go into our Me Time Monday wellness hack. And as I mentioned, you know, November is National Alzheimer's Month. And the Alzheimer's System and in fact, the Alzheimer's movement really adopts the color purple. That is the symbol, you know, just like we have red ribbons for American Heart Health Month. We also have purple for Alzheimer's Month. And we're going to talk a little bit about the color purple. It's also something that we find in our military because the Purple Heart is the highest award that you can get for bravery in battle. And so our Me Time Monday wellness hack is on the power of the color purple to promote better emotional health. Here we are. Welcome to the Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. This episode, we focus on our year of living colorfully and how purple is connected to magical powers and emotional health, such as bravery, resiliency, loyalty, and spirituality. November 11th is Veterans Day, and the color purple is associated with courage and bravery. That is why it was used in America's highest honor for bravery in the U.S. military service, the Purple Heart. This award was created in 1782 by George Washington to give soldiers for commendable action during the Revolutionary War. Purple is often associated and connected to royalty, power, privilege, luxury, wisdom, magic, and spirituality. In ancient times, dyes to create purple fabrics were rare and thus could only be afforded by powerful, wealthy people such as the aristocracy. Near the ancient Phoenician port city of Tyre, located on the Mediterranean coast of southern Lebanon, purple dye was created by crushing the shells of a small sea snail. The resulting color became known as Tyrrhenian 
purple and is so well known that it was mentioned in Homer's Iliad and Virgil's Aeneid poems. Kings and queens from Alexander the Great to Queen Elizabeth II at her coronation in 1953 wore the famous Tyrian purple colored robes, although Queen Elizabeth II's robes were purple velvet using modern dyes, not sea snails. Purple was also the color chosen by the women's suffrage movement in the early 1900s, representing freedom and dignity. Women felt purple or violet represented the vote as well as loyalty, constancy, and steadfastness. Purple also represents spiritualism, supernatural beings, and imagination. Because of its rarity in nature, it is seen as a mysterious and supernatural color. It is a color that resonates with creative souls and encourages self-knowledge and inspires wisdom. It is why Alice Walker named her novel, The Color Purple, to symbolize the beauty of nature. A reference in the novel where the character Shug Avery tells the protagonist Seeley that it pisses off God when one walks by the color purple in the fields and does not notice. Purple is the color the Alzheimer's Association chose to show support and advocacy for those affected by dementia. The nonprofit organization explained their choice of purple this way. Purple combines the calm stability of blue and the passionate energy of red. Purple makes a statement about the Alzheimer's Association and its supporters. We are strong and unrelenting in the fight against Alzheimer's disease. Purple can also be perceived as arrogant, which is why some websites and brands such as Hallmark or Yahoo use purple accents instead of entire logos in the color purple. Purple is also seen as a color that connotes a creative and unique personality. Just think Prince and his famous Purple Rain song and movie. In fact, Prince explained the meaning behind his iconic song lyrics as being about the end of the world and being with the one you love. He said, we have to let our faith and God guide us through the purple rain. He chose purple because he said the sky is purple and blood is red, giving you purple, but also because purple is a notable color in religious imagery. In Catholicism, purple is closely associated with Advent and Lent and carries connotations of royalty going back to the sovereignty of Christ. In Judaism, purple stands for redemption through God, Eastern religions have their own interpretations of the color purple, such as Buddhism, where purple symbolizes mysticism, and Hinduism, associated with purple and peace. When it comes to light therapy, purple LED lights are a combination of red and blue wavelengths with dual benefits of both skin clearing, which is the blue light, and anti-aging, which is the red light. Purple is also beneficial for cellular oxygenation and regeneration to promote enhanced skin fitness and vitality. And after aggressive and invasive treatments such as Botox, fillers, or lasers, ultraviolet light therapy is recommended to reduce the inflammation and visible acne scars and encourage wound healing. It also stimulates collagen and elastin in the skin for regenerative health. This is similar to purple foods that contain anthocyanins, the type of antioxidants that prevent and repair cellular damage. Because purple lights include a red hue, 
They are recommended over blue lights for getting restorative sleep because they do not disrupt circadian rhythms. Although most experts advise that you should use more of an amber orangey red nightlight, which is best for safety and finding the bathroom at night without fully awakening the brain and the body. However, while purple lights encourage cellular repair, they have also been found to decrease sex drive. We hope you enjoyed this explanation of purple and as part of our Me Time Monday wellness hacks. Each episode of our Caregiving Club on-air podcast features a new Me Time Monday wellness hack, and you can check out all of the great wellness articles from my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life. I'm Sherry Snelling, and I wish you all to take care and stay well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving, Caregiving Club on Air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, and other listening channels. And check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com. Just click the podcast tab at the top. And you can also email us at podcast at caregivingclub.com. Take care and stay well.